I invite you to take a Bible now and to open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We'll be reading the second half of the chapter together from Matthew, chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there on the pew, this is on page 807, where we will read from verses 18 to 25. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's direct. He tells us that he's about to unfold the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. That now the time had come. He had given us a genealogy before to recount for us the history of the people of Israel. The promises that God had made throughout generation after generation to send a Messiah, one who would come. And now there's no more introduction. It's time to announce the promises made or promises kept, that the Christ has been born. So he's telling us from the beginning something about this baby, because Christ is not a part of his name. We, as the story continues, it's not the name that Joseph and Mary give him. The name that they give is Jesus. Christ is not his middle name or his last name. It's a title given to him. So Matthew, from the beginning, is telling us about Jesus Christ, so that we read the rest of his story with a different set of lenses, if you will. Our expectations become a little bit different if from the beginning we have in mind that who we're learning about is in fact the Christ. The people who heard the news initially had some indication of it, but it's something that they discover over time. It's not until Matthew chapter 16 that the disciple Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. They come to that realization themselves much later. But Matthew begins the gospel for all of us who are hearing it afterwards so that we know from the beginning who this special person is. Uh, there was a story in the news recently that underscored the significance of this for me and how we receive the information differently depending on what we know about a person. One of the stories, I don't know if you heard about it, uh, but when our former president, George H.W. Bush, passed away, that his various stories were told about his life, one of them that I found that was fascinating was that he had begun a pen pal relationship with a young child in the Philippines. And he wanted to do it, but for security reasons, couldn't disclose 
that he was the pre former president of the United States who was now writing letters to this kid. The concern of the organization was, if people in this kid's town think or believe that he's hearing from the president, it would actually put his own life at risk. Here's the story. Nearly 20 years ago, former President George H.W. Bush wanted to sponsor a child from the Philippines called Timothy through a nonprofit organization known as Compassion International. But first, he needed a pseudonym. Uh, and here the author says, now that the president has passed away, it's not a classified name anymore, but it was George Walker. It's the same name that he used apparently whenever he checked into a hospital and they needed to have it unknown that he was there. Bush's security team was worried about Timothy's safety, said Stafford, president of Compassion International. If word had gotten out that the child was communicating with a former U.S. president, he could have been in danger. Through Compassion International, a sponsor writes letters to a child in addition to providing financial support. Bush's letters were intentionally vague to mask his identity, and all communication between the two of them went through the president of Compassion International, Stafford. He says, the first time that Bush started breaking the security rules was when he sent a picture of his dog, Millie, and added, this is Millie, she's met lots of famous people. <laughs> Stafford says this laughing, and I thought, okay, that's cute, but we're starting to slip in some secrets. Then years later, he wrote, we're going to have Christmas this year with my son at his house. And then he adds, oh, and he lives in a big white house. And I'm like, come on, Mr. President, you're really pushing the envelope here. Uh, Bush's sponsorship began around the year 2000. He was at a Christmas concert, and a plea was made at the Christmas concert for anyone present who wanted to sponsor a child. To everybody's surprise, he rose his hand, and he said, I want one. So a packet was passed to him, and all the security people were like, has anyone screened this? Does anyone know if this package is okay or not that's coming? And within two weeks, he sent his first letter to Timothy. He hand wrote the letters and even drew pictures. He really threw himself into it. He would write to little Timothy and Timothy would write to him and anything that Timothy said that was interesting, President Bush would write back with a comment. You know, thank you for the picture of that beautiful rainbow. You know, we had a rainbow outside my house just last week and on and on. He told Timothy that he loved baseball and golf, that he was pretty good at throwing frisbee and he was looking for common ground with him. After learning that the boy liked art, he sent a package of colored pencils, crayons, paint, and sketch pads with a Compassion International staff member. Oftentimes, if you sponsor a child for a long time, it's presented to you as an opportunity to meet that child one day in person, if you so choose. But that was happening at the very same time that he was getting older and his health was failing. So it says, years later, as Bush's health began to fail, Stafford's executive assistant, Angie Lathrop, took over the sponsorship. And then in 2010, when Timothy was 17, she and her husband flew to the Philippines to meet him. The Lathrop said, Timothy's a very quiet and shy and sweet-spirited guy with a very tender spirit, Stafford said. He played the guitar on his church's worship team. Angie's the one who told him, your former sponsor is someone that I know pretty well, and he was the president of the United States. And Timothy was so dumbfounded. He was speechless. And he says, well, I knew that he was kind and encouraging, a wonderful man, but I had no idea. And I thought, you know, to a child in poverty, it's amazing enough that anyone would care about them, but it was beyond his wildest imagination and even his ability to comprehend that the president of the United States 
knew his name. It changes how we hear the story when we know who's involved. Anyone who takes the time to write letters and gets to know someone from across the globe and shows compassion to them, it's a wonderful act of faith and something to be praised. But we get that people of a certain status in life often have to disguise themselves a bit so that the relationship that they form is genuine and sincere and is not intimidating to the other person involved, or in this case, doesn't put the person's life at risk in any way. So how much more the news that not just the leader of a country was coming, but that the maker of the whole universe was entering into it. If he were to do that, if he were to come on the very planet that he made, among the people who he made, how would he have to do that so that you and I would interact with him in an authentic way? That we wouldn't be overwhelmed or intimidated and just fumble over ourselves? And the story of Christmas is that he came as a baby. He came as one of us. But Matthew starts by reminding us that he is the Christ. This is the promised one that generations had been waiting for. And so now every detail we read about his life takes on a bit of a different color. It's, it's more vibrant because we realize every aspect of his life to him, therefore, was an intentional choice. You and I did not choose where we would be born. We didn't choose to whom we would be born. Much of life was given to us. But for God, entering into the world and entering into our story meant beforehand he actually made the choice to be born in Bethlehem, made the choice to be born in this very humble home, made the choice to get to know people in a way that wouldn't intimidate them or overwhelm them. Because he's not simply Jesus, he is Jesus Christ. What is told then as we read the story on to Joseph is that he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you've grown up in a church context, you've heard that phrase often, and it might not shock you or surprise you in the way it might have for the first people that heard it. The Messiah was the promised one who was to come, and he was going to save his people. But the angel says that he's going to save his people from their sins. And that last phrase would have been a little bit surprising. What do you mean from our sins? I mean, we're waiting for someone to come. We need another ruler here. We need someone who has power and authority. But we need him to save us from those people. We need him to come and to save us from all of those problems. They were people who were ruled by others. So this is how it's described in a, a book that I've been enjoying recently called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. The first century Jewish community in the Holy Land was occupied and oppressed by the Romans. Before the Romans, the country had been ruled by the Greeks, and before that, by the Persians. At the time of Jesus, much of the land was owned by foreigners who controlled huge estates. Local farmers were obligated to rent land and were often treated unfairly. The Jewish revolt in the 60s of the first century was partially sparked by the economic and political oppression of the people. In a situation of political and economic oppression, people naturally want salvation, but from what? The salvation they seek is deliverance from their oppressors. 
Any prophet who wants to talk about sin and salvation with a community under occupation already has these words defined for him or her. The concept of sin is shaped by what people are enduring from their oppressors, and the word salvation is used to express their longing to be free from that oppression. For such a community, there is little space in the mind to tolerate anyone talking about its sins and its need for salvation from those sins. An oppressed community perceives its own faults as dwarfed by the enormity of what it is suffering from others. Any discussion of its sins will be heard as belittling the harsh world in which they live. It takes a brave man or woman to tell the community that it needs salvation from its own sins. And it does take a brave man or woman to announce to people who are hurting in a way that doesn't diminish or undermine their hurt in any way, but that they is, there is still something from within themselves that they need to be rescued from. There are things for which they are still responsible for in spite of what everyone else is doing around them and that they need to be healed from and rescued from it. And so just in chapter one, if you don't know the rest of the story, it's kind of setting itself up in a foreshadowing way. Man, this Jesus is going to have problems, one, with the bad rulers, the Romans who are in charge and oppressing his people, but he might even have some difficult interactions and relationships with his own people who don't want to hear that they need to be saved from their own sins. And sure enough, that's what happens. He's executed by the Roman governing authorities, but he's executed in that way because he is taken from some of his own religious leaders who ask for that to happen to him. They don't want a Messiah to save them from their sins. They only want a Messiah who will save them from other people. And Christ has come to tell the truth about the world, the truth about its oppressors and the powers of darkness that exist in this world, but the truth also about how that darkness also reigns in our own hearts, that we need to be liberated from it. Most of us are never tempted with the power to do whatever we want to do to whoever we want to do it. And we are therefore spared from committing a number of sins that we might if someone just said, you can do whatever you want to do and not face any consequences. Right? Most people, if you, if you had that sense that you, you could just do whatever you wanted and no one would know, tend towards a darker part of their heart. It was a joy for me at one period of time to be a substitute teacher in the Akron Public Schools, and so I'll often use this as an example. If you hear, even in an elementary school, that a teacher didn't show up and it's only kids in the room, are you as an administrator or a fellow teacher in the building excited, neutral, or scared? <laughs> You're nervous. Wait a minute. They might be able to just do whatever they're wanting in there and no one is watching and supervising? Yeah, it makes you nervous. Even six-year-olds that don't quite have the, the capacity of adults, you're like, that just lends towards someone picking on someone, someone doing something wrong. It's true of all of us. So we can look up at certain leaders and say, I can't believe they did this, and I can't believe she said that, and I would never do that if I was in that authority, but most of us truly will never be tempted with that. But the God who knows us and knows everything about us, he actually knows what we would be like if we had that authority. 
He not only knows what is in our minds and thoughts, he knows all the what ifs. What would you or I do if we won the lottery and didn't have to work a day? Would we be generous or would we be selfish? What would we do if we had the authority to punish everyone we were afraid of? Would we have due process or would we not? God knows those things. And the Christ who's come into the world as Jesus, who will save his people from their sins, is the Christ who still speaks the truth to us. Prophetically, he speaks out against the injustice and the injustice that is in this world. But he has the ability to deal with all of us individually. And no one of us can say about our own hearts or our own sins, well, don't worry about me because so-and-so is doing something far worse. No, he can deal with them and us and all of us together at the same point in time. And it's good news, though, that he knows everything about us and that he's come into this world to save us. He's come to offer us hope. He's come to offer us a way out. And then the next name that's given to him in this passage is the quotation of an old prophecy. So to Joseph, he's saying, this is what you're going to name him. Jesus means God saves. But I want you to make sure you understand that. Not just saves from Romans, not just saves from political oppressors, saves his people from their sins. But then in the quoting of this old prophecy, it says, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you have one of the handouts, it's it's the quote given there in the back of the handout by another pastor. He says, if we could condense all the truths of Christmas into only three words, these words would be the words, God with us. He can speak to his own people and to all of us authoritatively about our sins because he's also come and entered into our world and experienced the very same oppression and suffering that we all experience. It's, it's impossible to tell someone else they need to get over a problem if you have no idea what that problem is, if you've never felt it yourself. It's not received very well if you try to correct someone of a different background going through a different life circumstance. But people who know that they've suffered the same things will listen to each other. You've lost someone like I have. You've gone through this painful experience like I have. It it gives a sense of authority to that person to speak to the other. And so the Christ who's come and lived in this world experienced the oppression and the suffering that all of his people experienced. And he said, I'm here. I'm not separated from this. I'm not distant from it. The very next chapter we'll read about terrible suffering that came to Bethlehem because Jesus was born there. That for almost every other family in that town, It was a tragedy. And everything that Herod did to the families in that town, no one punished him for because there was no one to punish Herod. Herod had the ultimate authority. But Jesus knew that. Mary and Joseph knew that. For the rest of his life, he never forgot that. And so he came into this world to experience it with us so that when he offers us a way out and offers us redemption and offers us forgiveness, he can speak to our hearts as one who knows them well, who knows what it was like to live here. So then when he offers us hope and he offers us a future and he offers us eternal life, 
we have reasons to believe him. He's not making little of anything that we've gone through. But because he's come from heaven to earth, we can believe everything he's telling us here on earth about the goodness and the beauty and the truth and the wonder and the glory of heaven that is available for each and every one of us. And so he can bring good news of great joy for all people because he's telling us what he knows and he's telling us what he was willing to suffer to make available for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the birth of Jesus the Christ. We thank you that you were willing to come and to be among us, to know what life on this earth was like, to choose intentionally to enter into the story of your people, to know their suffering, to know their pain, but also to offer freedom and hope, restoration and the promise of eternal life. And so we do rejoice in this holiday. We, we do thank you that you came. And we thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you remain with us. That there is not a single person here who is distant from you or who can't come running to you. And so we pray that you would uh, help us in our own hearts to be willing to deal with our own sins as much as we can highlight and see the sins of other people. Not to despair, not to be depressed, but to find life, to find hope. And then through that, to find the ability to love the people that are around us who are each struggling with their own issues. We thank you for your grace. And again, we thank you for the way that we got to even see together as a congregation at Witness through Cynthia and Anthony's testimonies and their, their joy in identifying themselves with you because you are the one who identified with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.